Welcome to Brand New Doctor. My name is Rola Carajo, doctor turned healthcare graphic designer and brand strategist. This is the show where we share big ideas and look for inspiration in all kinds of places to help you grow a fulfilling career in healthcare. Following a path to success is one thing, but carving your own is another. So this is for you if you want to go beyond book smart. I'm joined today by Amy Story. She is a physician assistant turned clinician generalist and community creator. As a clinician generalist, she uses her clinical expertise and broad experience to help early stage health tech startups succeed by providing services around clinical and product strategy, focus group facilitation and project implementation, to name but a few. She is also building a community for clinicians and writes a newsletter called Humans in Healthcare. Amy shares the stories of healthcare professionals, patients, and caregivers, highlights clinician creators, and makes space for healthcare professionals to be human. Through her work, she is unpacking and giving meaning to our experiences in ways we don't often get the chance to in the healthcare sector. Amy has done so much already with her career. She was a physician assistant for 11 years. She's built a people operations department at a clinical research startup from scratch. She's worked in product, customer success and operations and consulted in areas relating to chronic care management, collaborative care and population health. And I am just scratching the surface with this. In all areas of her career, she is providing value to others by being flexible and using her skills and experience in healthcare in new ways to meet the evolving needs of patients, clinicians and her clients. Amy, it is truly a pleasure to have you on the show. I've been really looking forward to this conversation. I really feel that you and I are like minds when it comes to exploring and caring for ourselves as human beings, as well as clinicians. Thank you so much for having me. Um, what a wonderful intro. Uh, can you come along with me when, wherever I go? <laughs> Just be on my shoulder and read that for me? Of course. <laughs> yes, I, I so agree. Very kindred spirits in this journey of life as we're all you know, discovering together for sure. Yeah, yeah, it was it was a real pleasure to discover your work. So thank you for joining me again. So you are a clinician generalist, but you started your career as a physician assistant, as I said earlier. And as you put it, you are using traditional skills in non-traditional ways. I know that from my experience, when you're carving out a niche for yourself, often that change and even how you describe yourself is a real journey. So can you take us on that journey with you? How did you get to where you are now? Yeah, absolutely. So started my career as a physician assistant in, in medicine. Um, and so for those who, who may not know what a PA is uh, here in the U.S., we are medical providers. We're trained on the medical model. It's not as long duration um, as a physician would go through through medical school, but learning similar things. And we function as um, healthcare providers where we see patients We can order labs, interpret labs, uh, prescribe medications, diagnose, and so do similar things um, that of a physician, but work in kind of a medical model um, under the supervision of one. And so I started my career there. I I always like to add this in as well. I actually didn't start that as my first college experience. I started um, as a theater major. I loved the arts, um, you know, in high school, I had done theater most of, you know, in, in, in high school, very musical, very artsy. 
but also loved science. I really just loved the process of learning and figuring things out creatively. And, you know, got to the point uh, as a theater major where I kind of understood, you know, for me that it just wasn't going to be possible to, to really make a living. And through some different experiences, came upon um, working for three PAs and got to see what their experience was. And they kind of took me under their wing. And so that started my journey um, toward becoming a PA. But yeah, I started uh, in medicine. I um, have predominantly worked in gastroenterology and then also mental health. Um, and interestingly, there's a there's a big crossover between the two. Um, gut brain access is real and, and thriving and for many people not doing so well there. Um, and so worked in a variety of settings, both inpatient, um, outpatient. Where I worked at the time um, was a very interesting place because there was a very poverty stricken inner city. And so I really got to see the lack of access and how that really impacts um, patients for sure. Uh, just the underserved. Um, and it was really eye-opening experience. Worked direct in direct patient care for about seven years. And I think throughout that experience, you know, it was really tough because I think year after year, the the longer I was in it, the less I felt like I was helping. Um, and I think, unfortunately, a lot of healthcare professionals feel this way when we go in with motivation to help and to serve and to care. But when we're met with the reality of the system that we're in, especially here in the U.S., where it's very profit driven, what I felt over time was I was, you know, wanting to care and help people, but I felt like I was serving a system, and that was really challenging year after year to feel like. I was really doing anything good, you know, wanting to really care for people, um, but having to, you know, like ordering tests and having it be denied or knowing that, you know, people didn't have insurance and like, what, what could I do? Where could I help? Um, and so that was a really big struggle. So I think that was a factor into where I'll, you know, get to in this clinician general's journey. But I think also, you know, I think as being a human myself, a big part of what I value is learning and growth. And I think for PAs, and this could be changing now, but there's there wasn't a lot of growth opportunity for me. You're a PA, you're here to see patients. I was referred to frequently as a revenue generator because we're in a for-profit system. And that really felt like dehumanizing to me. I wanted to learn and grow. I wanted to do other things. I had other skills that I wanted to apply. And so many times in my experiences, I would, you know, say, hey, look, we can do this a little bit differently or, hey, we're not communicating here. Let's, you know, determine a process to make this a little bit easier, you know, for patients and, and providers. And it was often met with resistance because I was really just seen as, as a clinician, not seen as like who I could become. And so that was really tough. I wanted to grow and learn and there just wasn't really a ton of opportunities. Third, very burned out. <laughs> I think for you know, many healthcare professionals, we again come into this wanting to serve and care, and we're not doing that for ourselves. And, you know, we can only give as much as we're giving to ourselves. And I learned that the hard way. I got really burned out. Um, I had just had my son. And so, as a new parent, I was dealing with the, you know, the exhaustion of being a new parent. Um, my husband travels frequently. For work. And so really as a primary parent, I didn't have a lot of support um, where I was living at home, just there wasn't a lot of family around. And so I began to ask myself, gosh, I don't know if this is sustainable for me in this way. Um, and so I really had to grapple with what could I do? Like if I, 
I asked myself the question, could I see myself doing the same thing in 10 years? Um, and like see myself surviving. And the, the honest answer was no. And so I had to really grapple with, okay, well, what does that mean for me? What can I do now to put myself in a position where I still love and care for people and patients, but like, how can I do that where I'm also meeting the needs of my own self? And so I began this journey to, you know, figure out, I know these skills that I have as a clinician, right? I'm a diagnostician. I can look at problems and kind of figure out where are there gaps and like, how can we get to a place of, you know, building a solution around that? And so I like just started creating a list of, I've got all these skills. How could I apply them elsewhere? Maybe it wasn't a healthcare professional job, but maybe somewhere in healthcare that could use my skills differently. And so um, it was really interesting. I networked a little bit, which is scary. I'm introverted. I don't like putting myself out there. As many healthcare professionals, I'm sure can relate. We're not taught that in school. I, you know, had talked to one of my friends who was in the pharma industry and he said, oh, I know the person I should connect you with. And it ended up being a company who was part of a local payer system. They were employed as consultants to help support primary care practices who were transitioning to more of a value-based care model and implementing programs that would help support them. So things like chronic care management and population health and integrating behavioral health um, and using skills like project management and process improvement and change management. And so I luckily was able to join that team. And that was my first kind of foray into this other world of using skills that I had done traditionally in the clinic, but just a little bit non-traditionally um, outside of that. And so it's been this journey to really rebrand myself in my mind of what I can do the skills that I have that I can use a little bit differently. And, and you're right. Like, I think for me, it's, it's been interesting. I, I, sometimes I feel like labels don't fit me. And so I create labels for myself. And that's really where that cl clinician generous label came from, because um, it was for me, just like putting out into the world, you know, who I was and what I could do. And so, yeah, I've done a lot of different things along the side of product and customer success, success and operations and health tech. Um, and I think what I found through that experience is, you know, there's still a really big disconnect, I think, between the language of the clinician and the language of business. Um, I think it's because we speak different languages, but we want the same things. <laughs> we want to build solutions that are patient-centric and want to really serve, you know, patients but we, the way that we see that is a little bit different and the way that we talk about that is different. And so through my experiences, what I'm trying to do is really normalize that we are wanting the similar things. We just speak a little bit differently. So how can I transform the language of a clinician into the way that a business needs to hear it and vice versa? That was really long-winded, so I'll pause. No, that was great. That was really wonderful just to understand that that process that you've gone through I, I I've written down some notes if you don't mind I was I was making some notes as you're talking because there is just a lot to talk about here there's a lot to unpack you know I know we're in different systems you're in the healthcare system in the U.S. and I'm over here in the U.K. but there are kind of universal themes that I see running across both of these types of careers where it's like Burnout is a is a huge thing over here as well. Struggling with family life and how you juggle that alongside a, a demanding job and and even just the the reality of working within a system that doesn't always support you to do the right thing, surprisingly, even though it's really all about 
helping people. Um, yeah, there's there's a lot to talk about, but I guess I want to come back first of all just to the way that you approach your skills, how you how you see the skills that you you had as a clinician and how you were really able to transform that. And I know you're you're talking about speaking in a different language and it's so true. You you kind of have to learn how to you have to grow a whole new vocabulary, a lexicon of words that you use to communicate with people, which can be pretty daunting. But um, I guess I'm curious to know which of your skills were you kind of surprised that you could use in a different way? Which which of your skills did you really have to work on to be able to transform? And and do you have a way of thinking about, you know, here's here's something I used to do as a clinician. How can I make this work in a new environment? Yeah, definitely. And and I would say I'm I'm still arriving to that, I think, you know, as as many clinicians who are on this journey are. But, you know, I think first and foremost, we always hear about hard skills versus soft skills, right? And I think I think the reality is they're just skills. You know, skills are skills. But I think as a clinician, we really value those soft skills. We have to as being in a service, you know, people-oriented profession. Um, empathy, active listening. Um, are really big fundamental components to 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 business. Business is also in in the relationship kind of management field, and so even just things like that that you don't think about, it's just second nature, um, are actually really prized. Um, I think also critical thinking. Uh, we do that all day long as clinicians, you know. And I think that's one of the things that burned me out a little bit is. You're constantly critical thinking. You're making high-level critical decisions repeatedly every 15 minutes. And so you really get to hone that, right? You get to like really hone what it means to be a really critical, deep thinker, but that at, a, at, at scale. And that is also a really fundamental thing in, in business. If you're, you know, along the side of strategy or, you know, just like, how do we process this? How do we scale this? Like you can use that experience to, to, to do that in, in business as well. I think the thing I was really surprised by is just how much there's a sales component in medicine as a clinician. When you're talking to a patient, you know, and you're, you know, I think, I think, I think clinicians don't always understand that they're like, when you're talking to a patient about a treatment or a di- or like even about a vaccine, you know, vaccines are very polarized. And so you you know, have to kind of go through like pros and cons and here's what you could gain if you get this. Here's the implications potentially, right? And and really meeting people where they are in that moment and really, you know, driving home that sales per se or like what you're really trying to say, that is huge. And I think I was really surprised, you know, that's also for sure in business, especially if you're in a little bit more of a, you know, customer facing role. And that was really surprising to me. A lot of clinicians would love to be able to do what you're doing using their skills in different ways, but they oftentimes they lack that confidence or knowledge of what's out there to do that. And I see that probably more in healthcare than any any other profession that people really find it harder to break free of the belief that there's only one way to do things or that, you know, there's kind of one track that you should be following because a lot of the time, I suppose, because we're, we're following procedure a lot of the time. And I think that applies whether we're talking about 
processing difficult experiences at work or we're talking about leaning into our career aspirations. And I see both of those things are kind of important in your career journey. So I would love to know, why do you think that is? What, what do you think it is that makes it hard for us to, to shift gears? And what do you think can help us? I mean, I can, I can share my, my own experience, you know, and hopefully this relates to someone as well. You know, I think many medical professionals spend years training um, and money, <laughs> time, effort. And for many people, wasn't necessarily the case for me, but they dream of, you know, being a physician or, you know, a, a nurse their whole lives. And so it's like this kind of journey that they've been on for years um, that's taken years to fulfill. And so I think when you start to think about what if it isn't or what if there is something different, it's it's a lot to undo, you know, in your mind. Um, and, and it certainly was for me. I think, I think also, you know, there's definitely a sunk cost fallacy. I think that healthcare professionals have, I spent all this money, you know, for my training and now I'm thinking about doing something different. Like, how can I possibly do that? And I think it's this mindset battle of saying you have your, still have your whole life ahead of you. It's okay. You know, you can still use your skills differently, but it's this huge like reckoning in your own mind to think about who I was and who I am and now who I want to be. Um, and I think it's really, it's really challenging. I think also we are, we are often seen as these knowledge experts, you know, in our day to day. And so when we think about doing something different that we have to learn over, like that's scary. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe I don't know. Maybe, maybe I, maybe I don't have as much knowledge as I, I think I do or, you know, we're trained again to like just give and give and give. And so um, when you think about, you know, learning something different where I'm going to be using a different part of my mind that maybe I haven't, you know, for years, like it's really scary. So I think it's, I think it's actually pretty normal to feel like, what do I have to offer? Um, and, and how can I use my skills a little bit differently? I think where we like the imposter syndrome, I think is a pretty universal experience, right? I think where, and I think what I've had to, to coach myself is it's normal. I like what I'm feeling is normal. I think it's okay to question myself and my abilities. I mean, how else do we know where we're, what we're good at and what our gifts are? Because we're not all good at everything. We can't be all things to all people. So what I've had to coach myself in is it's normal to ask myself these things. I think what's the abnormal pathological thing is just getting stuck. How do I unstuck myself and how do I just take that next step forward? Um, and I think too, for clinicians, we always are thinking ahead and we're like, we, we want to see that whole process. But I think the, the challenge for clinicians is to just take that next step forward. Even if you can't see that whole staircase in front of you, it's just that next step because that's how we learn and how we grow into something, even if it looks a little bit different than where we are today. Yeah, there's so much um, synergy. I, I hate to overuse this word, but I feel like I'm using it more and more often now. But there's so much synergy in what you're saying with the way that my 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 journey has gone as well. Just this idea of just taking the next step more so than waiting or or trying to predict the future and and predicting what your career is going to look like in five years because there are actually no guarantees of of what's going to happen right so it's it's always best to just decide step by step how you're going to get to to where you want to go to which is actually just so 
I guess it's diametrically opposed to most training programs in healthcare, right? You know, I love what you said, and I'll just share because it's been a really helpful reframe for myself. We're so often thinking about like the 10-year plan or the five-year plan, right? Like that's kind of how we're just trained as humans. Um, And it's really interesting because someone had asked me in in, in an interview once, like, where do you see yourself in 10 years? And, and this was like, I had started this, you know, transition process. So I had been out of that kind of clinical mindset for a little while now, but I realized how much of that discomfort of that question was for me, because I'm not thinking in 10 years anymore. I'm not even thinking in five years. I asked myself, what is my one day plan? What is that next step I can think about and just live one day to one day? Because if I try to think too far into the future, you know, and that for me is even five years, I miss out on what is right in front of me. And we're continually evolving as human beings. And I think for me to be too goal oriented and to be too focused on the future, which I've always been, I'm a planner. Um, takes away so much from the present and what is right in front of me and the opportunities and like things that I can connect to today. And so I would really encourage people to not think in 10 years, not think in five years, just to think in one day. And that's, you know, you can still have goals for sure. You can still aspire to things, but remember to be present. Yeah, definitely. I, I love that. I I'm a self-confessed planner as well. I remember reading this article that was talking about different ways people kind of cope with anxiety. And I can't remember the other the other kind of um, categories of people because I zoned in on planning because that's exactly what I do. When I'm concerned about how things are going to turn out, I just really try and like figure everything out on paper. But you actually just can't actually do that. It's just, just impractical, really. So I love this idea of just like giving yourself permission to just focus on one day at a time it's it's your right as a human being to just think about being alive for a day (laughs) that's okay (laughs) so I want to shift gears a little bit and talk a bit more about your work with humans in healthcare you share these incredibly moving stories from everyone involved in the healthcare experience and what I love is that you are you know, helping to put the reader in someone else's shoes. And we empathize and we learn so much on an emotional level. And we see also ways that we can improve our practice as well. So uh, there was an example. I remember there was a story you shared um, from Samantha Gamolka. She was a physician assistant and she was diagnosed with ovarian cancer relatively young. And she talked about how she made friends with other people who were going through cancer treatment. And some of them said that they had a delayed cancer diagnosis because they were apparently too young for it to be suspected in their case. And she talks about how that changed her practice as well. I'm really curious from your opinion, why do you think it is that we tend to separate the emotional from the practical when it comes to our education? Because those experiences or that kind of emotional connection, I think it cements in our minds so clearly how we should go about things, actually. What, what, what do you think? Yeah, you know, it's a great question. And I, I still, I'm still arriving to the answer to. You'll, you'll hear me say that a lot because I am more of like a questioner. I think when I reflect on my education experience, And not to say it's wrong, right? But we are taught to, we're taught didactically. We're taught 
we need to look at things rationally. We need to look at things logically. We need to look at data points. We look at algorithms, you know, um, statistics and rule-ins and rule-outs. We're taught to ask the question so we can elicit a certain answer. Well, we're literally taught to like, you know, ask questions of, you know, put symptoms together, right? And we're taught to be diagnosticians. And so I think in our training, we're taught very didactically, but I think the struggle is we're not didactic humans. We're humans and emotions and our intuition is actually part of that. Um, and, and, you know, it's, it's really interesting because, and I think a lot of clinicians will, will say this, you begin to develop a clinical intuition, but it doesn't always come immediately. It, become, it comes with experience long after you start to practice and intuition is built upon years of that experience and something telling you I've been here before where is this leading me um but we're not taught that in school we, we can't be it's just comes through experience and so I think sometimes we really overemphasize that rational logic thing you know data points labs rule and rule out but we're as humans also when we see patients we're we're not textbook medicine i mean we're we're people and i think you know i think the unfortunate thing is i think what ends up happening in our training is we're trained to see people as problems to be solved instead of people to be seen and heard and acknowledged and validated and respected and just because a textbook says you're too young doesn't that's not always the case there's always exceptions to the rule and I think sometimes we rely so heavily on the rule that we forget the exception and we forget to like think outside of the box a little bit. And also because we're so in our day-to-day, -day, you know, just going against a clock and, you know, that's not an excuse, but I understand why it happens. We're just, we're protecting our own mind, right? Our own mind goes to the places of anchoring bias out of, I think of self-protection of just like, I got to get through the day. I've got to make one more decision, right? And so you, in and of yourself, train yourself on this kind of algorithm and, oh, wait, no, this patient's too young. It doesn't fit what I've, you know, been kind of doing all along. If we can just stop and pause and see a person as a person and not a problem to be solved, I think potentially we could build more of that intuition, looking at them holistically um, and just stopping and saying, something doesn't feel right. Something doesn't sit right. Like, even though they may be too young because the tech, textbook says something's not right. Something's not adding up. Let me, let me just investigate this a little bit further. And so I think we, when we can really honor that experience as both didactic, logical, and emotional, like, I think there's beauty in that, but sometimes we just prioritize one versus the other. And I, I think it's out of our own survival. Yeah, I think that's a really, a really um, considerate answer. It's true. It's not, it's not a clear cut thing of right versus wrong. Honestly, I think that everyone is trying their best and they have the patient's um, best interest at heart. Like people are, are really working out of their, you know, their best intentions. And we also have to just recognize that people are human beings as well. I feel like we work in a system that, well, I guess I don't anymore, but I've worked in a system that relies upon us as clinicians without necessarily recognizing that we're also human beings as well. And um, 
there's two sides of that. There's there are wonderful things about a human being that we should be taking advantage of that that capacity to feel and to have instincts about things and intuitions. Those things are not recognized or I feel encouraged. And on the other hand, there's also just human needs that we have that are oftentimes not met. And you know, just as you were saying about making decisions, um, just that kind of idea of anchoring to something that we already know. And if something doesn't fit that, then we're going to kind of rule it out just for our own kind of sense of self-preservation to be able to get through that. Because you do get that kind of decision fatigue as you're going through the day, of course. It just made me think, you know, if we if we did recognize that there is, we are human beings and there's something wonderful about that, maybe we would give more breaks to clinicians in the day to actually just to think like this is just a break for whatever you want like it's very obviously there are emergencies and people need to talk to you and all these kinds of things but I I, I would have loved to have you know just like 10 minute pauses dotted throughout the day it would allow you to think about things um, to really reason on what you want to do next but it would also you know just give you that breathing space to decompress a little bit as well. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about grief rounds as well, because this is one of the spaces that you are creating for people to really unpack these difficult moments that we often have to go through. Yeah, definitely. So I'm still in the process of organizing the first one. So I'll I'll follow up with you and let you know how it went. But it really came out of, I think, the fact that so many people one-on-one were reaching out to me when I started to share my own experiences. And I think what I, what I found interesting in that is not that people were, were reaching out to me. It was the fact that they, they trusted me to share their own experiences and I didn't even know them. And I think it was because they, they saw themselves in me. And so I thought about, well, how can I put that together in a very small group with people who are having these kind of shared experiences who can really validate them, but giving people a space to talk about the traumas in their day-to-day as a healthcare professional, um, because there are, and it happens. And as healthcare professionals, we are generally not granted that space when it happens or like, you know, um, I mean, certainly there, you know, I would always recommend healthcare professionals to, to go to therapy and really like dive deep. But sometimes it's also just having a support group to share the experience with someone just to get it out loud and verbalize it and have it be validated. And so the idea with grief rounds is that um, I came across an article about how an oncologist does this every Friday at his office where he, you know, with oncology, right, he loses a lot of patients um, regularly. And so as part of his own grief practice, he takes time every Friday to honor the patients that he's lost. And they his office shares, you know, something they remembered about them, something funny, the humor, what they brought um, to that experience, the patient, you know, um, telling them the story and they get to share that together. And just that beautiful moment of remembrance, honoring that patient and being together as that healthcare team, I think it's just so beautiful. And I want to create that space because not only in oncology, it's everywhere in healthcare. We, we see things we hold you know, so, so near to us that we never process out loud. We go through experiences um, that maybe it's not the loss of a patient, but maybe it's giving someone a life-changing diagnosis. And like, how do you, 
you know, maybe you're in a very similar season as that patient. Like maybe you gave a mom, you know, a really life-changing diagnosis. I'm a mom and like, gosh, how, what would I feel, you know, if I were in that position and just getting the opportunity to be, to verbalize that and to be validated and to just have that kind of story sharing experience. And so that's what I'm really looking to create is more of those small intimate spaces where you can just release it, <laughs> let it go and release it, but be in that safe space to do that. I think with grief rounds, um, you know, that, that makes a ton of sense, but I think there's also in your career, you know, I think there is also a grief and a loss with healthcare professionals when they think about leaving the clinic. Uh, I've definitely been there. And so even that, like, how do you process that? Who am I if I am not a clinician? I've worked really hard this year to really de-identify, you know, who I am with what I do. Part of that has been labeling myself as this thing to kind of like, you know, de-identify a little bit with who I've what I've been. But even that process is really hard. It's the loss of an identity. It's the grief um, that comes from that. And there's so many people in that process. And I just want to be able to not have the answers because I don't, but give people a space for the questions together and really kind of live themselves into the answer together and be that support for each other. Yeah, that that is really beautiful and and absolutely needed. It's so true that there is a kind of grieving process with with change and um sometimes that change is losing a patient but it can also be losing our careers as well i um i just have to say that i again I, i'm kind of gushing but i i do think that it's amazing what you're doing with sharing stories allowing people space to share stories whether that's through grief rounds or through um the the newsletter as well you're really helping to um, break down these barriers that we have between patients and clinicians and, and different kinds of clinicians even. It's, it's often said, I mean, you know, in, in when we were in medical school, they'd be like, you need to show empathy, you need to show empathy. But I think you're really helping people to actually feel it for real. <laughs> we're, we're, never, we're never told to feel empathy, we're just told to show it. And, and um, maybe, maybe it's easier to kind of feign these things in a sense but um we get so much more from actually feeling it so thank you for that I have just one more question for you I would really love to hear your thoughts on this I ask this to everyone who comes on the show just imagine for a moment that you are the dean of your university and you can influence the curriculum in any way you see fit for healthcare students or people who are going to become future healthcare professionals in some way or another, what educational experiences would you want them to have that could help them in their career to improve the healthcare experience for themselves and for other people? Yeah, I loved this question. And I think reflecting on my own experience and just having, you know, a lot of conversations with people who are, who are actually working on trying to redefine what medical ed education does look like in the future. I think there's a few things. I think definitely remembering that we first have to be compassionate toward ourselves, especially in a caring profession. And that starts with that starts with training, right? And so if we are not actively engaging in a compassionate practice for our own selves, what does that look like then when we become care providers, right? And so I think really leaning into that piece there's some beautiful work by Kristen Neff, Dr. Kristen Neff on compassion, self-compassion. Um, and so even just like influencing that through 
elements of the curriculum, right? What does that look like for you as, as a practitioner, um, turning it inward? So I think that's definitely one thing because I think that could potentially do a long way on burnout prevention and quote unquote compassionate fatigue. I don't, I don't necessarily love that word, but, but really just like remembering that you first are a human, right? I think that's the other piece is you can't pour from an empty cup. So how can we create a more sustainable path forward for healthcare professionals where they want to, they do want to stay in healthcare. I think there's many people who do. So how can we make that a reality, right? And so redesigning even just, you know, how we're thinking about our training, but like actively engaging um, students in what they want to see out of their own future, right? And like letting them be the leaders of tomorrow and really engaging them, calling out those leadership qualities from day one in students. Because um, I think that's really big. I don't think we're often taught how to be a leader. And yet, you know, as you, when you go into healthcare, especially physicians, like they are called upon to be leaders, but we don't, we don't teach that. So how can we teach leadership um, and compassion and empathy, creating those psychologically safe spaces to to lead, um, you know, and I think everyone benefits from that. And then I think, I think third, um, we are, you know, in this digital health, you know, revolution, we're seeing AI. I think it would be amazing to have these new fellowship opportunities where they're really bridging the gap between tech versus healthcare. It's tech and healthcare, tech and clinicians. And I'd love to see these new fellowship opportunities where a clinician is working side by side with a product leader in a tech company and getting to be that SME, but then also getting to see how the business world operates. I think that we are only going to naturally have to do that, I think, to, to you know, be the, the future that we want to see. And so creating these other opportunities and these other experiences from, you know, the, the standpoint of education. So we don't get into that point of, you know, we're in clinical care and then we think, oh, let me, now let me go understand what business is. I think it just has to be part of the education. Um, and the last piece I'll add, or one more is, I think actively um, having these like patient focus groups where they get to talk about their experiences in healthcare, um, how they want to be treated by healthcare professionals, how they felt, um, you know, in when they were just, when they weren't looked at and someone was looking at a screen. Because I think it's a really eye-opening experience to to know that, but then to go through that in the day-to-day -day as a healthcare professional. Um, and so if we just, if we acknowledge that sooner and they get to hear what patients feel, how they want to have their cultural beliefs taken into, what does it look like to actually see a person as a person and not a problem to be solved? What does that actually look like? And having these kind of patient-focused groups where they all can kind of, um, be together from that student mindset where you're learning and you're embracing instead of just pushing them off into the world. Um, really, you know, like part of that is learning, you know, as, as you're a healthcare professional, but just getting to have these experiences in your didactic um, years as well, I think can be really helpful. I think that's an amazing answer. There's so much we could talk about there, but I think I, I will, I will leave it there. Only one thing perhaps is just to know about compassion as you're saying I think this is such an important piece how how can we 
being more compassionate with ourselves in terms of a, a practice? Would you say, do you think it's mostly through journaling or um, would you say it's kind of through a particular kind of activity that we're taking? Maybe that's physical or meditation or something like that. What would you say? I think those are definitely all components. I, I hesitate to they say there's a one, one size fix all because I do think it is a very personal journey. And I think for me, it was the, the recognition that I, I'm also human. I mean, I, I, I say that a lot, but it, it took a long time for me to recognize that I'm a human. I'm going to make mistakes. I am not perfect. I am not going to have the answers. I struggle with the same things. And then just that recognition, recognition that I'm not a machine because um, healthcare, unfortunately, does treat us like that in many ways. And so it is um, a fight against the machine to recognize myself that I'm, in, that I'm human. I think journaling has been a big part of that for me because it allows me to just process out loud um, on the paper and then kind of think about that throughout my day and like kind of come to that answer. Um, gratitude, you know, is always helpful, like just announcing what you're thankful for um, at the beginning of your day can really kind of help shift that that mindset. But I think for healthcare professionals, I think it is um, one thing for sure, it would be to remember what nourishes your own soul. I think we hear about this blanket term self-care, um, which unfortunately gets thrown around as go do something good for yourself, paint your nails, go to have a massage. And those are all good things. I don't want to take away from that. But self-care to me, what I've had to reframe is it's actually really soul care and it's really soul preservation. And so what are those things that are really going to preserve your own soul to reconnect yourself with yourself? When you are not living in compassion, you disconnect with yourself. And so a lot of it is just finding those ways to meet yourself where you are. <laughs> in the moments um, that you need. And so, yeah, I think journaling is great. I think mindfulness is certainly great. I think being out in nature has been one of those things for me as well. But I think it's, I think it's up to the, the person to recognize, be curious within the, their own selves and then come to that, that place of conclusion for themselves. Absolutely. Those are some great suggestions, some, some ideas for where, where we can start. I think it is, um, finally, I'll just say that to your point about, um, not being able to pour from an empty cup is so, so true. And I, I, I really believe that we should be focusing on things that help us to, to fill our cups again. And, um, and whatever that might be for me, it's a, a variety of different things, gymnastics and drawing, being artistic. These things are really important to me. And um, yeah, I guess we can urge our listeners to, to really focus on what those things might be for them. So thank you again, Amy. This has been wonderful speaking to you. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I've loved this conversation. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Brand New Doctor. I hope it inspired you in your personal journey. Check out the notes for a summary of the show with all of the important links. And if you enjoyed this, do me a favor. Subscribe and share this episode with someone else you think could benefit from this message. I'd love to hear from you. So why not leave a rating and review? It really helps other people to discover the podcast too. You can also find me on LinkedIn as Rolakeojo and on Instagram as Rolakeo.so. So that's all for now, but I'll be back soon with another episode of Brand New Doctor.